Yeah, we love Ted Lasso. And this is the podcast to the show. You can listen to or know. Welcome to our Ted Lasso talk, the Tedcast. Welcome, all Greyhound fans. Welcome, all you sinners from the dog track and all the AFC Richmond fans around the world. It's the lasso way round these parts with Coach Coach and Boss. Without further ado, Coach Castleton. I'm your host, Coach Castleton. And with me, as always, are Coach Bishop and, of course, our boss, Emily Chambers. Coach, how you doing today? Doing all right. Ready to dig into episode two. Episode two, entitled Biscuits. Boss, how'd you like this episode? I love this episode, and the Spice Girls is also my best concert. <laughs> what was your what was your first oh god my first it, well my first oh actually this is impressive i was about to uh, uh make fun of myself but technically my first concert was huey lewis at Summerfest in milwaukee i was three and my dad was kind enough to pull all of three of his children up onto the top of the like outhouse but not exactly an outhouse fancier outhouse and we sat on the roof of that and watched Huey Lewis rock out so that actually I'm proud of that sounds fun Huey Mm -hmm. Lewis love Huey Lewis what about you coach what was your first it's crazy because even as I was watching the episode I was like I don't 100% remember my first but the first concert that I remember very clearly like okay here we go I went to see Smoke and Grooves when I was in college and uh, we were doing Rock the Vote so we got to see all these acts um, particularly remember Busta Rhymes coming out, whatever. Uh, so it was this huge rap concert and series they were doing around the Rock the Boat stuff. So I remember that. I remember that very distinctly. And the, my favorite, interestingly, because I have canceled Kanye, it's got to be a decade now I'm done with that guy. Uh, <laughs> but but uh, yeah, it was him and uh, Jay-Z. And I was there in LA the night they did... Um, I'll say N-words, in, in, depending on what our, uh, our rating is going to be, but N-words in Paris 10 consecutive times. And it was unbelievable. It was like, it was a religious experience in hip hop, watching like all of Staples Center lose their minds as they did the same, that song 10 times in a row. So it was pretty amazing. So there you go. Oh, my God. Yeah. I can say that uh, I can vouch a little bit for how amazing that is. Because when I saw the Spice Girls, one of the best concerts ever, they opened with Spice Up Your Life. Mm. And then you think, what are you going to do? How are you going to top that? What's going to be your encore? No, no, no. They ended with Spice Up Your Life also. <laughs> Only way to do it. I love that. Oh, that's hot. Mm-hmm. Know your audience. Exactly. Today's episode, uh, episode two, Biscuits. I think it's a story by Brendan Hunt and Jason Sudeikis. Brendan Hunt plays Coach Beard. And the teleplay is by Joe Kelly, and this episode is directed by Zach Braff. I don't think it's a coincidence that the story was done by Brendan Hunt in this episode, and it's also the episode where I started crushing out on Coach Beard just a little bit. Huh. Roy was a done deal. Like, crush at first sight, basically. As soon as he said the uh, fuckface Joseph, I was in. (laughs) Coach Beard took me an additional second, but something about him in this episode is telling me he would ruin my credit, which is, you know, obviously (laughs) the biggest indication of attraction for me. That makes a lot of sense. That makes a lot of sense. So we open up with Ted in the bed. 
He remember he was having a terrible sleep. Uh, but it's a continuation of episode one. He has the one shredded wheat joke. He sees the uh, the guy playing the music outside. Watches some kids play soccer, walking around Richmond Green. And we intro the girl, the soccer girl, played by Shannon Hayes. And she doesn't. They just call her Soccer Girl on IMDb. But he calls her Shannon in the show eventually, not in this episode. But uh, I just thought it was cool. She's a kind of a cool, interesting character. Then uh, we have our first episode of Biscuits with the Boss. Wait, can I can I can I jump in here, uh, Coach? Real really quickly. I just I think that the whole opening, but certainly once we're outside with Beard and Coach Lasso, and Coach Lasso, I think is a real guide through what we're about to experience with them. He takes it all in. He takes it all in. He's so ever present. He sees the singer. And he sees the kids playing soccer. He, he doesn't just observe it there. There, he actually sees them, and he sees our soccer girl. Like he, he does, and that's really important. But it's also really important that he have Coach Beard there to make sure he doesn't get hit by a car and to get him to work on time. <laughs> right? Like I, I feel like it's all there in that walk. So anyway, I want to call it out because again, no wasted motion in this show I, that I can see. You know, I felt like there wasn't any wasted motion, um, and they really are great at layering things they're going to be using in the future. They, you know, include it right now, and you don't realize until the rewatch. But what I liked a lot about the opening scene is that it did seem a little bit looser, at least in terms of the jokes that they were allowing to play out, like the one piece of cereal and he was stuffed. Or right after that, they have the joke about, let's go get some coffee, and then... Ted very casually, he goes, oh, that's close, because they walked two doors down. Like, neither one of those are super built-up jokes, but it's right. very nice to get to sort of hang out for a second without it being... It, it's still funny without being too overpacked. I think that's great. Can we get to Biscuits with the Boss now? Or do you guys want to foam at the mouth over <laughs> for Don't encourage foaming at the mouth. I will take you up on it. <laughs> All right, so we, Ted arrives at work, and he's got some cookies. But he makes a terrible biscuits and gravy joke. Dear God, um, it's on, on the part on the on the. It's like just dad jokes everywhere. Uh, it's like the Nathan's hot dog joke. It's on on that on par with that. You know, she says she greets. I noticed Rebecca greeted him as "Hello, Coach Lasso." Very formal, mm-hmm. and um, I really enjoyed that. This is the first the line where he says, "This is the first time we disagree." You know, she says, "I don't have time for the." I don't know. No, what what was it that she disagreed about? Well, the basic concept of biscuits with the boss. Biscuits with the boss, right? That's what that's what she said. I don't have time for this or ever, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and she said, and uh, he says, "We're gonna, it's gonna, we're gonna have to agree to disagree." First time we disagree, and he says, "No, that's the second time. Tea is tea is garbage water. I don't know why I'll do that." So we have a little <laughs> little callback on the tea. Uh, then he knocks out, does the first concert, best concert, which we we've made it through. And they don't quite make it through there. And let's talk about, you know, what's the dynamic Rebecca's trying to set up? Rebecca's trying to set up a dynamic she's comfortable with, right? Which is she is in her place and he is in his and they don't ever have to meet. Like, literally, they don't ever have to meet. And he's just going to continue to disrupt that. There's a beauty to it that we know we see we get to see him be relentless in this particular way. But I think it's important that he describes that first concert. 
and that he says it's Kenny Rogers and he sings The Gambler because actually when Kenny Rogers died recently, I really started thinking about that song. I was telling my wife how much I love that song. Unlikely looking at me with my dreadlocks, um, walking around. <laughs> like That's one of my favorite songs like ever in the history of songs. And what I realized revisiting it as a man, um, having heard it all these years, was it's the entire song is being taught is that per- the gambler teaching us to be present. You got to know when to hold them. You got to know when to fold them. You got to know when to walk away. You got to know when to run. The only way you can see on another man's face whether he's all out of aces is to be present and to be looking at his face and to be really seeing his face. So even in that song choice and even in that joke that plays great between them and they've got their timing and it's all beautiful, I feel like they're still hammering away at this the Buddhist stuff that was already planted in episode one of the importance of how present Ted always is. Yeah, I really liked that he was present. Um, One of the other things that I picked up from it was that Ted himself says he's going to be back tomorrow, but he's also willing to leave that morning. When she kind of shuts him down, he says, I'm going to try again. But he listens to what she's telling him then and leaves. Like, he obviously had more things to say about Kenny Rogers and about his favorite concert, but he wasn't going to push it right then. He was reading her and making sure that he wasn't overstepping his bounds too much, even if he was still trying to break her a little bit. Right. And there's no ego, once again. There's no, nothing in him that's hurt or wounded. He knows this dance. We also get in this scene the start of something that I think is a is a nice runner throughout the series, which is, what does Rebecca spend her time doing? And I mean all her time. Yeah, I have no idea. She... <laughs> She all she does is Google yes. Rupert on her MacBook and slam it closed when anyone walks in. I mean, it's yes. like amazing. Yes. I mean, if you if we start to keep track of how many times she is torturing herself, looking at the t- online tabloids and news of her ex husband uh, when when Ted comes in, it, it is uh it's uh, torture what she's doing to herself, what she's inflicting upon herself. But she, you get the sense that she just can't stop. And it's the opposite of presence, right? She is obviously resisting what is. And what is, is, dude, they're divorced. And he is who he is. And he was how he was. And these women exist. And she just won't, like, she, she's in that past. She's, we watch her literally engaging that past and refusing to engage her present, which is walking in the door in the form of Ted Lasso. It's definitely brilliant. Part of what sort of threw me off about the idea that she would only be Googling her ex-husband, at least it only being shown, is she must actually have a job. Like, we know that she owns the club. She must be doing something with that. And she must be doing something fairly well because she knew who Ted Lasso was before she she came up with the plan of firing uh, Coach George and of hiring Ted Lasso and was able to do all of that without anybody knowing. So obviously she knows how to plan. But I was thinking about that, and I was thinking, how would she have found Ted Lasso? I think she would have gone onto her computer and typed ridiculous football coach. (laughs) Right? And then an American football coach comes. I mean, how would she have found Right? I mean, like, realistically, how much work does she – I'm not sure – she doesn't even close the door on her Rolls Royce for herself. Like, I'm not sure that she is – pounding plowshares uh, into swords during the day. It seems like, I mean, if I know anything about a lot of the people I grew up with and the families I went to school with, private school, they're 
dads and moms weren't doing a whole heck of a lot. <laughs> they weren't doing a lot of work at the top. But it's interesting, though. So I get that Higgins is on some level, but he's he's good and he's lovable. I don't get the sense that he's great and like sets the course for anything. So do you feel like he's at least doing that piece and sending him off to make it so? Or what's your like? I don't. You asked the question, really, I do wonder, some, I guess, now, how does she spend her days? We, we don't know it from the show, but I am curious about it. I don't think she spends her days guiding policy, but I could be wrong. I, I didn't have the sense of that, but it may be just a different read. I think in all the humdrum stuff Higgins just takes care of or various people in the organization take care of, we don't see them, mm-hmm. but we know they're there. Mm-hmm. And I think she's you know more of a figurehead uh, at this point and – I don't see her dictating a lot of policy. Maybe maybe as we go through, we'll see examples of that where that actually comes out where it's, okay, she has engineered this for the team. One other thing I wanted to bring up real quick is, did the name Higgins spring to mind? Anything else for you guys? Does it, is it reminiscent of anything for either one of you? Mm. It wasn't for me, boss. I always think Henry Higgins, even though I don't and, think that there's any specific right. tie here. Henry Higgins, right? Yeah, exactly. I would think what jumped to mind for me was um, Magnum PI and, H- <laughs> and, and H- Higgy Baby. And I was oh like, I God, wonder. So, Magnum PI is a show, and this I have some insight into this because years ago uh, I worked on, helped, helped a friend who was hired to work on the Magnum PI script. And I remember sitting, we, we analyzed this like crazy. Like we went over every, I was a huge Magnum PI fan and Hawaii Five-0 fan growing up. When we were talking about a, a Magnum PI movie, the biggest thing that we, we came across was like the whole story of Magnum PI is a love affair between Thomas Magnum and Higgins. And so like one of the worst things you could do to disempower Magnum was to take Higgins out of the picture. Um, even though they're always at each other's throats and things like that, there was a bond there that is what made the show what what the show was. And so I wondered if they gave Sudeikis a Magnum P.I. mustache and they tried to situate, do a little homage by naming that character Higgins, even though you would think, okay, it's, it's, you know, it's Ted Lasso and it's beard. I didn't, I didn't know if there was anything there, but I'm just, I'm just obviously speculating, but it's, it's the thing that jumped to mind when, when I paired the mustache with the, with the, with the character name. <laughs> Anyway, um, all right, jumping forward, Ted leaves the office after Biscuits with the Boss, session one, high fives the tree, which I loved. High five, tree! <laughs> and then <laughs> right away we show Ted on the field, and he's got a little, some nerves or something, His hand, he's flexing his hands. Mm-hmm. We're not exactly sure what that is, but Coach Beard notices it, says, you know, T tells him to relax. What's the first thing you told me on the first day we coached at Wichita State? The Shockers. Wichita State Shockers. What's the first thing you told me? Do you remember what his response was? Lose the ponytail. Yeah, Yeah. lose lose the ponytail. Oh my god, I love jokes like that. That's that's a that's like chef's kiss. That's so good. What was the first thing he said? Lose the ponytail. After that, relax. They're just kids. So Beard is aware that there's there's some nerves or something going on with Ted, and it manifests itself in his hands apparently. And then we're on to Jamie mocking Sam on the field. Yes. So all of the men on the show um, need to watch out because I will form a crush at one point or another, except for Jamie Tart, because I am not interested in pretty boys. But <laughs> I think it's a pretty clear, clear indication that 
Jamie is looked up to in a lot of ways because of his skill, but he's absolutely not the leader of the team whatsoever. And so Roy does have to come over and push Jamie off. Uh, they have a little fight and then he picks Sam up and Sam gets to go talk to Ted. But any chance that they get to highlight that Jamie might be the best, but he is definitely not a good team player. I'm going to enjoy because it sets up this dynamic between who is filling the position. It, it, absent somebody in the leadership role because the last coach was seemingly so not present. The team has sort of split between the actual team captain and the person who is filling it on a skill level and setting up that dynamic and trying to reconcile it seems like such a good way of introducing the team dynamic itself. I totally agree. And one of my pet peeves is, is casting actors who can't run in scenes where running is required. <laughs> There's a, I've actually just saw the worst. Uh, I was watching. I was watching. I'm going to do a whole post about it uh, online at some point. I saw the worst runner I've ever seen in my life. Just saw him last week. It was uh, in the show My Brilliant Friend. And it was a guy who was running while holding hands with his girlfriend. And I've never seen a body contort the way this guy did while he was running. And there are some notably great runners in Hollywood. Like one of the sad things for me about it coming out that Mel Gibson was utter trash was that he was a great runner. He could run really well in movies. That's funny. So I always notice, okay, are these guys even soccer players? Like, can these guys kick a ball? Mm. And, and they're pretty good actually. And I, it's like such a credit to the show that they, you can see them step to the ball properly. You can see them swing at it properly. Uh, for the most part, their hips are doing the right things. It's pretty – it's refreshing, actually, because it, it's such an easy way to lose the suspension of disbelief is to be like, oh, Jesus, here's a bunch of actors who've like literally never played a sport in their lives. And it, it just takes you right out of the show. And I noticed in this scene, like, no, Jamie actually kicks the ball pretty well. And um, that's that's a credit to the show. So we so do this, set up. If this is one poll, then like the basketball in West Side Story would be like that's torture. <laughs> like in right. your version, in your version of hell, they just toothpick your eyes open and play that over and I, over. And over seriously, again. I can't. I honestly can't. T- I'm not kidding. Oh God, and I see it everywhere. You see it in all kinds of things, even if it's just somebody running. Right. But yeah, no scenes like that. They, I can't take it. I can't. It just pulls me right out. I feel like you guys are trying to say that theater kids wouldn't be jocks, and I don't understand that. <laughs> um, here's the thing. I act, I wasn't a theater kid, but I did the performing thing, and I did feel very odd. I felt like there were two mm. like two versions of me that went to school in some ways, because anyone who knew me on either side didn't really know me for on the other side. You know what I'm saying? So it's kind of uh, interesting that you make that point, because I, I, no, I knew both That's a groups. fair point. And my, the schools I went to... They were like New England prep schools and they were, we had jocks and druggies. The school was split in two. It wasn't like a lot of, it was not a lot of like micro groups. It was jocks and druggies. I was a jock. I played all the different sports. I loved playing sports, but I was also, all I did with all my free time was be in the theater and, and write plays and direct and act. And, and, and I loved that. And all my best friends were druggies, but I didn't do drugs. So hmm. not then anyway, I, 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 I corrected that. I corrected that. The, the jocks would – I would hang out with these guys and they would be like – I remember sitting in this one room. It was like a dorm. We had dorms and things like that. So uh, I was a day student. I was not a boarder. But I would go up and, and these guys would be like well, – there's like six or eight guys piled into a room watching like a baseball game. And someone would say like, hey, uh, like who played like third base for the Phillies in 63? And I'm like, oh, and guys would know. Like eight – you know, like six of the eight guys would, would have an answer. 
and and five of them would be correct. And I was like, oh, just kill me. I do not give a shit who who played. I don't care who plays third base of the Phillies now. Like who? What? How does this affect? Like anything, I was, it was just, for me, I was like, this is, this is hell. This is hell. <laughs> and so all my best friends were druggies and a bunch of them were in the theater. That's a weird thing to have. Maybe, uh, maybe that's why I'm pickier about that. By the way, what is the uh, happiest uh, animal on earth? You want to take goldfish. that one? There you go. Because it you know only what? has a memory of 10 seconds. Be Sam. a goldfish, Sam. Be a goldfish, Sam. And I have that joke. I like this little, this is just something I wanted to mention when, when uh, Nate tells tells Ted, you know, that Sam's been underperforming and he's been sort of down in the dumps since he got there. And he says, we're going to have to night cherry him up. I cannot stand jokes like that. But I love that Nate laughed at it. And he's like, yeah, I don't. You're still laughing at jokes you don't think are funny. Huh? He's like, I don't I don't know what is a joke and what isn't. <laughs> it's such a such an interesting. I mean, cause these guys are just getting to know each other. And I'm like, I just thought it was great. I thought it was great. I love Nate. Well, now as you describe it, I wonder in some ways if it isn't also sort of self-referential, right? I mean, Bone, you were pointing out a minute ago that in, as they walk, you know, oh, that was, you know, here's the coffee shop two doors down and you just get that little joke in there. And I think there are a ton of those jokes within the context of this show where it's like, it's a little thing. It's not a guffaw, you know, set up, set up, punchline, right? It's just something, oh, that was funny. That was funny. It makes the multiple viewings interesting too, because I feel like you catch more and more of them as you go. So it might cheer me up. <laughs> No, it's good. I feel the same way. It feels good. It's great when you read a uh, like a script. If you're if you're in this industry and you and you you have to go through. It used to be a stack of scripts. Nobody has them printed anymore. Now they're just on your uh, in your inbox. But you, when you blast through these and you start to get like somebody that takes the time to craft jokes on every page. When we used to write uh, screenplays, we used to say three jokes a page. Like I don't care what they are. It could be a funny word. It could be. A funny turn of phrase, like, but just give the reader three jokes a page. And you're right. They don't all have to be home runs. You know, I'm going to have to jump ahead a little bit here because part of what I love, my favorite minute of TV that I've ever seen maybe is in this episode. Mm. And after making all these little jokes that seemingly don't land and that nobody's picking up on or Beard understands, but isn't going to laugh at his joke. uh, After making all those little ones, though. Uh, when Ted goes into Rebecca's office and she's trying to figure out what the cookie is and where it's from, he says, uh, time for biscuits with the boss and Higgins. They have a little bit of back and forth. He talks for a second about his favorite concert. And he says that it was the Beastie Boys at Horrorfest in 94 and then pauses to interrupt himself and say, wait, did you guys get the OJ trial here? which is a story I want to hear about. I don't understand why those things are related, but I want to know. (laughs) He then, you know, gives Rebecca (laughs) the little, like, we're a team, we've got a bond, we've got to get together. I'm having lunch with Higgins. And on his way out, he says, all right, Higgins, see at your office, we'll have salads. And Higgins says, see you later. At which point, Ted, like, explodes back into the room, slams the door and just says, yes. Yes. And I laugh every time I see it. Like the physical comedy alone <laughs> is so brilliant. Rebecca is startled by it. But also it's one of those instances where Ted has been doing this thing the entire time that he's been there, dropping these little puns and making dad jokes and not getting any response. And as soon as Higgins does it, he knows he's got him. It's so brilliant. It's so amazing. I watched it four times last night in a row. 
Isn't that great? And what is so and once Ted leaves, what is what does Higgins say? He's intolerable. Yeah, he's intolerable. <laughs> he's intolerable. <laughs> but I think it it also speaks to uh, Ted'll wait, right? Like Ted'll wait until you get the joke, right? If the joke is we do little puns, that's how we all get along around here. Then like when you start doing them is when you start doing them. But when you start doing them. I'm going to celebrate it. I'm going to let you know. Now you get it. He could have kept walking and smiled to himself as he walked down the hall. Oh, I've got Higgins on board. But he like he came back to reinforce it, which I think matters in the show. I think it matters to, in the show. I think it matters to him. But I think also there was a little bit of it that wasn't entirely celebratory. There was a just a smidge. And I'm going to uh, chalk this up entirely to Sadekis' performance where... He really needed it. This was the win that he really needed. He has Nate the Great on board, but Nate doesn't fully understand Ted's style. And this was him, like, making the first crack in the armor of the team. Like, he got Higgins. He got Higgins to make the joke. I like it. That makes a lot of sense. Uh, Sudeikis is also a really talented physical comedian. This was his most aggressive movement to date in the show. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I mean, he, he. I mean, he hits that door like a linebacker, you know, and he points like ferociously. Like he, it's not in his Yoda isn't doing a lot of door slamming. You know what I mean? There's right. like a right. there's a tone to it that sort of uh, emphasizes the importance of it, which I really like. And of course, because Rebecca's British, it sends her. You know, she's she's in a kerfuffle <laughs> over the whole the whole thing. <laughs> Moving on, we we get that. We have them on the field. We have the um, a little meeting about who we're going to uh, play this weekend on Saturday. They're playing Crystal Palace. Uh, Coach, anything we need to know? A lot of speed on the outside. Okay, good. Thanks. Anything else? A lot of speed. <laughs> I thought that was so funny. I like guffawed because I've been in. I've been on coaching staffs. You know what I mean. And you know yeah. what you're supposed to say. But it was just. The delivery of it was so perfect. They've done this about a thousand teams. They've done this about whoever the star player is. Like they know, they know their places. They know their lines. They know how to deliver it. It also reminds me of like keys to victory, like, mm-hmm. you know, for a game. And Beard is like, he just looks at this team. He looks at the analytics. He looks at everything and he goes, that's it. If we shut down their outside speed, we have a chance in this game. Like he's already figured that out. Uh, that's a great point, and which right simplify. That's how they yep. coach. Simplify, yep. simplify. So yeah, we simplified it. There's speed on the outside. So be fast or be first or do whatever you got to do. But that's what yeah. it is. And there wasn't a play. There wasn't B. There wasn't key to the game B. All right, is that it, Coach? Anything else? A lot of speed. Okay. All right. Good. So the speed was a okay. Right. It's an important takeaway. Got it. Right then, we we move into um, Ted holding the door for Rebecca. Oh, oh, right before that, sorry, I should say, Roy lets it be known that he doesn't love this new strategy, the suggestion box. Ted loves glimpses into Nate's personal life, which is, I thought, amazing. <laughs> amazing oh, line. <laughs> Roy lets it be known, like, we're you know losing three or four, we're, we're in trouble here. And you want to talk about snacks? I like how they're uh, setting those two people against each other. Well, that's because Roy clearly doesn't understand Maslow's hierarchy of needs. No. Like, no, clear, no. clearly Ted understands if you've got bad water pressure, you're not going to be playing at your best. If it doesn't seem like the team cares about you, you are not going to care about the team. 
You're right. Yeah, that's spot on. Hundred <laughs> percent right. As we both sit here, oh yeah, good, good point. Uh, awesome. Uh, love it. Excuse that me while I wipe my drool up. Water and, uh, pressure. Water pressure is right at the top of Maslow's hierarchy. But it works. It works. It makes sense. But I do, I do think like that's a great point though. You are important to say to somebody. You are important to me specifically. I think is a powerful thing to say. And if the water pressure isn't there, then, you know, let's talk about it. Ted holds the door for Rebecca. She takes forever, like a queen. I'm fine with her taking forever. I thought that was great. She did not hurry, and he appreciated it. <laughs> then we get Lion, Lion or Panda. Keely screams in, and then we get Lion or Panda. And now we're starting to – and, Boss, I want you to, to run with this a little bit. But if – I think we all f- thought in the beginning of the show, we all worried, like, oh, God, this is just, like, all dudes – it's going to be a sausage fest. Will there be enough female characters and will they interact in a way that like even moves the needle on the Bechdel test at all? Is it like, <laughs> are we going to see anything that resembles right. a, a, a moment in this show that shows a little, some, some feminist leanings. And I liked the scene and I, and I really liked how I, I, and I should have written it down here, but I, I really liked Keeley's, you know, sort of reaction to, Rebecca, where she's like, she's a very tall woman who is very intimidating, or whatever. I forget she said, but I'm like, God, it was such, it was so great. Yeah, she's a very tall, intimidating woman. Yeah, exactly. There are so many things to love about this. One, I love Keely. I think she's great. Two, I love Keely and Ted, and I would watch them talk about which animal they want to be, like, for yes. hours straight. It, anytime that you want to team up Ted and Keely, I am on board. Yeah, I also no, that like, should be like a road show. Oh my god! If they wanted to do a buddy cop movie, I would personally <laughs> so good. go fund it. I know it's amazing. <laughs> They're so good together, and I, I think that we see their relationship a little bit more later. But I think part of the reason why they get along so well almost immediately is because they don't really need anything from each other. Like they're obviously in proximity to each other and seem like they get along. But he doesn't really need to win her over, and she doesn't really care if he's successful at coaching the team because she's just going to move on to another footballer. So they just get to hang out, and it's awesome because they like each other so much. And, and it's why they both understand why you would be a panda. I uh, love Keely so much. It's like I, was, I, I think back to how they met and when she says, welcome to England, and she bowed, bows like they were for their arms out. And, and she – she barked at him and made him hit his head. Like, (laughs) you know, it's like, she's just, God, she's great. The thing that I noticed was these are not fake avatars of TV women, at least not to my eye. What you're getting is two modern women, but two very different types of modern women with different sort of values and different rearing and different sort of upbringing and different, maybe different socioeconomic class. And how would they mingle with each other? So Keely, she poses the question, you know, lion or panda. And it's like, a like Rebecca's like, please, like she like all scoffs it off. It's, it's preposterous to suggest panda. Like it's, it's ridiculous, right? She's very confident in her, in her take. And I think being confident in her take, being utterly convinced of her rightness is one of the benefits of Rebecca's socioeconomic class for one. And secondly, one of the weakest parts of her personality. And it's on display there. Whereas 
Keeley's curiosity and openness are one of the most charming parts of her personality. She's sort of always open and interested, and she's just open to the world, it feels like. Bright-eyed, you know, like big doe eyes, and and uh, she's just sort of amazing. And we get to see the dichotomy between them really clearly in that scene, I thought. Yeah, no, I definitely agree. I think it's also interesting that Rebecca thought that the question was entirely ridiculous until... Ted said panda, at which point she became so offended that he would pick the wrong answer that she needs to come back and yell at them about how obviously it's the lion. Um, she also mistaken, not mistakenly, but she perpetuates the lie that the uh, lion is the king of the jungle. And guys, I cannot stress this enough. They don't actually live in jungles. They are not built for them whatsoever. They are savannah cats. I don't understand why people are saying that. So that was disappointing from Rebecca. <laughs> can I can I jump in on on this Uh-oh. as a as a person with a safari uh, uh, notch on my belt? You are a hundred percent right. And on top of that, they're lazy as shit. They're lazy <laughs> as shit. And the male lions are the worst things you've ever seen. They're filthy. They just sit around all day. Sometimes they make this sound where they go <laughs> like they do this. Like they do that. But the female lions are the ones that do all of the work. They do all the scouting, all the hunting, all the feeding, everything. The male lions come in at the end and sort of like just nudge people out of the way. And if they have to help with the kill, they will. They're like, oh, Jesus. But they are like, it's like the king of queens on the savannah. It is not, you're not talking about the king of anything. They're not the king of the jungle, certainly. As a human man, that feels uncomfortably familiar. <laughs> I'm uncomfortable. I'm not going to speak for either of you or the audience, but I'm uncomfortable right now. That's I was all I'm just going to say maybe part of the reason why Rebecca thinks obviously you have to be a lion is because she's thinking about being a lioness. And Rupert was a lazy son of a bitch who wouldn't do anything and didn't help the football club and, you know, was banging all of the other lionesses. And she's the one that needs to get it done. I think what you said before. Uh, Coach Castleton about their socioeconomic classes and the differences there. I think that that's definitely true. But I think there's also an aspect of it that's sort of generational. Uh, Rebecca's a little bit older than Keeley. And I think it isn't far-fetched at all to imagine that Rebecca being involved in the football club the way that she was and sort of coming up as a person in a position of power and having a leadership role in the club would have to be more of a lioness and be a bit more of an asshole and not be as nice as a panda would be because that's sort of what was expected of women up until fairly recently. I think that Keeley being nearly 30, I think she says at some point, is maybe the first generation of women who are allowed to be pandas and also still be successful. Or choose pandas, right. Or choose pandas, Is there anything less... Is there anything less uh, or anything uh, more embarrassing for a, a, a woman of the last 30 years than to marry a panda? Like, you, you, what, you're supposed to marry a lion, right? Isn't that, like, part of the, the trajectory of success or the indicator of success? Who would, yeah. who would ever marry a panda? That's crazy, right? At least that's the old way of thinking. Well, I think the, the piece about getting lions wrong, though, and I don't necessarily think that piece around Savannah – Versus jungle, which I, I, you know, that, that was, that was awesome. And maybe my new favorite thing about your boss, um, that, that you were that fundamentally bothered that you were like, time out. Hold on a minute. There, 
There might be a little bit of Rebecca in me too, but I wouldn't let that slide. I was like, <laughs> Have no, you no, even no, no, seen no. a jungle? <laughs> let me correct you there, Rebecca. That's yeah. right. That's right. Um, we already we already know what Ted's favorite jungle cat is, by the way. Lynx. The Lynx. The Lynx. There you go. <laughs> That's really fascinating that we really all remember that. Uh, but but I think the choice that you point to that's being made, I mean, it's a great way of externalizing it, making it funny. But Keely really is making that choice in her life. And she's talking to two people who've made their choice and who, in a gender kind of way, we would, you know, we would generally expect to have made the opposite choice, right? Like in a, in a stereotypical way, we would expect the man to say, well, a lion, of course, right? But they, they're choosing the other and sort of are standing there as symbols of each, which I thought was, I thought was interesting and went on to look up pandas as, and we're not supposed to say, uh, spirit animals. So, and I get that piece, but that's what it was. That, that's how I Googled it. Uh, to find what I was looking for. But even like as a representative animal and that, oh, come to find out, pandas represent balance in life. Pandas represent emo- the importance of patience, the value of emotions. So Ted isn't just choosing panda in this moment of funny. He's chosen panda. He's chosen that as a character. And I thought that was a fascinating way to put out there what they each are representing and where Keely is in terms of her crossroads. We are avoiding the fact that, or just glossing past the fact that he actually chose elephant. And and let me tell you, <laughs> as a person who's been, I've ridden elephants. I've been up close, and I remember we were driving through this like this bush in this in the safari, and an elephant came out of nowhere. Like you wouldn't expect, it was just tramping one lone elephant, and this thing was huge. I mean, huge, like ears, like like tents on each side of its head. And the guy was like, "Oh man, you don't usually see these elephants out here like this." And this guy looks a little pissed off. I'm gonna I'm gonna slowly back away, and they're just amazing. Out of my takeaway, when I went to went to Safari, I, I didn't go in, in with any preconceived notions. I just sort of um, was like open to the whole thing. I just wanted to see. I didn't go in saying like, I love zebras and I'm here for the zebra. I was just like, okay, I'm going to be here for the whole thing. And two things happened that, that I saw that I loved and they both had to do with – well, there was a lot of things I saw. But there was – the first one was baby elephants can kind of run fast. And it's the cutest thing you'll ever see. It's not like they're speedy or anything, but they go faster than you normally think of a of an elephant running. Mm-hmm. And I remember seeing this little like baby elephant playing like sort of tag with a little bird. And it was the cutest thing. I mean, I'm like melting thinking about it. it was so good. That was one of the things. And then while I was there, uh, I got lucky because like once a year, I think it's once a year, but I could be wrong about this. It's been years now since I've been back. But uh, once a year, you get a million animals. They call it the crossing. And a million animals cross the Amboseli. They migrate and their migration. We were there for the day that they crossed. And it's like nothing you've ever seen. They go and they have these, they put, it's it's usually zebras and wildebeests. And they go into the water and they start smelling the water because they, they go, I think there's crocs in here. And then you can see it. You're up high looking down. And you that thing is loaded with crocs, 50 crocs, 12 foot long. And you just go, oh my God, like, this is just going to be like slaughter. It's just horrifying. And then they sort of make a little formation and one brave wildebeest will sort of start hopping through to get across. And then the thing will vanish and the crocs will attack. And I, you're, it's just carnage. And you're just watching it going like, oh, my God, the circle of life. You're trying, you're trying to keep. 
I mean, it's not like watching, like, you know, you think like, oh, it's like watching Game of Thrones. It's not like that because you're seeing it right in front of you. And it makes you, at least for me, I, it made me like it, from then on, the, the my least favorite animal in the whole world is a crocodile. Like, that's it. That's from now. Like, I just saw. And they're just doing their job. They're just, they're just hungry and trying to eat. It's not their fault. But to watch it was really horrifying. And then this is what I saw. The elephants showed up on the other side of the bank, coming towards our side. And my stomach dropped. And I was like, oh, my God, am I going to watch Crocs, like, kill an elephant? Is that what I'm going to have to see right now? And I just was like, this is this might be the low, the lowest point of my life <laughs> to this point if I have to watch this. And the elephants did something amazing. And And I guess I had seen this in children's books. Do you have any idea what they did? No. Is it when they connect like tail to? Uh, yes, they yeah. literally connected trunk to tail. Right. They so did not have a, cover this in my zoo books at I, all. This is what they did. They connected, so you'd have a huge elephant, huge elephant, and these elephants with one stomp, even in the water, they can crush a croc. So you have a huge elephant and then a little baby elephant between. The little baby's holding the holding the tail. Of the, of the one in front and, and a big elephant behind them has their little tail and they start to cross big, little, big, little, big, little. And we just sit there. I don't think there was like four of us on the, on the safari and then the guide. And we didn't say a word. We just watched it silently. And I'm just like every second, I'm just watching, waiting for you know, the, something horrible to happen. And they made it across. Mm-hmm. And that was the only time in my life that I remember thinking like, I might consider religion. I might. <laughs> I was like, that is, that's seriously the most beautiful thing I've ever seen. And, uh, I get choked up thinking about it. It's so beautiful. So amazing. So anyway, I really liked, I came out of that saying, not a big fan of Crocs, huge fan of elephants. And, um, I really liked that Ted uh, was was trying to angle for an elephant uh, as his choice. Well, Ted seems a lot like an elephant kind of guy. I mean, I think we could get pretty far deep into the analogies here, but, uh, elephants, one of my favorite things about them is um, how agile they actually are. You would think that a, a giant house of an animal moving around would crush a bunch of things, and they can, but they opt not to, uh, which I think is pretty fitting for Ted. I think um, to go back j- just a little bit to the panda thing, um, one of the other things that pandas are supposed to be representative of is boundaries, which I thought was one of the more interesting parts because. It's not just that Ted is gentle and that he's balanced and that he, he's uh, going to help you become a better person, but they're also the symbol of making sure that you're not overstepping and taking care of yourself. Uh, boss, I want you to feel me metaphorically bolting back into the office and pointing <laughs> at you. Can you feel that? <laughs> Can you feel that right now? Can you feel that I'm like, yes, panda yes. imagery. Do it now. Yes. <laughs> Seize you later, boss. Seize you later. I, I want you to know that I'm appropriately Rebecca startled by this. <laughs> there you go. There you go. Just clutching your pearls. <laughs> I love the fact that, uh, I don't know if you guys remember this line, uh, when Keely is first intimidated, she says, oh, she's a very tall and intimidating woman. Do you remember what uh, Ted says back to her? I do, actually. She's got some fences, but you just got to hop right over them. I mean, come on. That's, there's so much going on in this stupid little scene 
the writing is so good. This is just so well written. There's a lot. I can't tell you. It's so hard to write a scene where you're trying to get get a point across. There's not a ton of movement. It's not like they're shooting laser guns in this scene right. and it keeps your attention. And yet you get a lot of like somehow passion from Rebecca. She turns around. She gives like a bloody image. She drops an F-bomb. Mm. There's a lot going on. It's triggering her in a, re- a really interesting way. And then once this whole thing sort of dissipates, we see Rebecca notice that they kind of, Keely and Ted kind of get along. We see her, you know, the evil window goes up and Dr. Claw or whatever. Mm. And then we have the nice scene with Jamie. And who would Jamie rather be? He's him. (laughs) Why why would he want to be anybody else? So vacuous, just empty, like an empty vessel. A box you open and nothing's inside. It's like amazing. My favorite part about this scene actually is that it leads to... I mean, we just got done with the Caesar you later, which I had to actually pause the show because I was laughing at so hard. But then three of the funniest things that I've heard in a very long time. The first of which is uh, Ted telling him, I'm not sure you're aware of how psychologically yes. sound that yes. is. Such a killer line. But I laughed so hard when we got to, I shouldn't jump too far ahead, but when we get to Keely's photo shoot and we realize that she's actually dressed up as a lion. Yeah. <laughs> Made me die that this was actually asking people's opinion. And then we get a cut to shot of the poor woman who was dressed (laughs) up with a panda. (laughs) Yes. That was the saddest face I've ever seen. She was so upset. And everything about the scene that comes after it, um, I I guess I should backtrack just a little bit and say that the reason that we get to see Keely's photo shoot is because Rebecca figuring out that she could use the connection that she observed between Ted and Keeley to do harm to the club is by having Ted go down to talk to Keeley about the best way of reaching Jamie. So we see her like setting this up and being kind of evil, let's be honest, mm-hmm. in a way that leads to Ted and Keeley having a lot of fun with each other. I think interestingly that they're if not the two most honest, two of the most honest characters on the show one and then maybe that i've you know seen just they are what they are they feel what they feel there's not a very much filter between that and the outside world i think there's some work around it for ted because he is doing a thing but they both i just found that thing you told me about pandas totally fascinating jamie can wait in the passenger seat till i'm ready to come go drive him because no way can they eat their weight in bamboo or, you know, or I, just, I just think it's great. Like they're just both totally present and eating those two and eating those burgers and talking about Jamie. And that's all that matters. And I totally buy, I buy that the way they, they connect uh, even more. So uh, we move on to, we have Sam's birthday uh, planning at the pub. They decide to throw Sam a party. It's just coach and beard. They open the suggestion box. It's just oh a great God. gag. It's just a great gag. It's just, a, you know, sometimes you write things like this and then it, it, you're like, oh, this is so trite and lame and we've seen it before. But they, the reason it works is because it works. Like wanker over and over. Okay, we got wanker. We got wanker. Then, you, then Okay, so there's a rule of threes in comedy. So do wanker, wanker. They go, I hope you choke on a burger. Oh, thank God that they're uh, anonymous. No, no, that was Roy. He signed it. He signed it. But I love Beard goes, oh, Roy. Oh, Roy. Yes, exactly. So good, right? May is played by Annette Badland. What a cool name, Annette Badland. Ooh. May is great. And she she just jumps right in and, you know, she's like, 
you don't want them to call you that, Ted. Wanker's not good. <laughs> it's, like, it's so, you know, tell a child. And she gives him the thing and, and he says, thank you for that because I'm a visual learner. <laughs> it's just like so hyper aware. It's like you, this is not, that's a very modern, yes. <laughs> you know, term, like a visual learner. Later, they reference uh, in another episode we're going to get to eventually. They re- they reference EQ, which is one of my like marching mm-hmm. things that I always talk about, um, as opposed to IQ. But that's the kind of thing. Oh, he's a visual learner. It's how how different. If you have a child who is a visual learner, you you know what this is, and uh, it's just crazy. It's a crazy reference. I feel like it's in the same category. Sorry about that, Bone. Go ahead. No, no, no. Go ahead. I was going to say that joke feels like it's in the same category as the unpacking by, you know, my, Ms. Uh, yeah, it's like a, it's like therapy words or yeah. like somehow modern plugged in new agey kind of, but not bullshit. It's, it's a legit term. It means something and you scoff at it at your, at your apparel because it actually, people do learn this it way. It matters, right? It, it matters. It actually does matter in the way that you teach kids. I mean, just quickly, I'll say it matters in terms of how, when I when I'm coaching kids, I think about this, and I have things that I I say to them. I have the thing that I actually show them when I go through it, so they can watch me do it. And then I have the repetition that they're doing around it for the kinesthetic kids who don't know what you're talking about until they actually kick the ball that way themselves and see how it feels. You got to be aware of this stuff if you're going to be great. And he is. Juliana's a Harvard and Columbia graduate, and and coach, you're a Yale graduate, yes. and I know. You know, if I give her a um, like a book on tape, like forget about it. That's not going to go in. There's nothing will happen. You know, (laughs) she'll just be like, "Thank you." What is this? This is just a jumble of of sounds. I don't. You know. So some people just really, it really matters. So and and what you're saying, just the opposite. I know that kids now will get the audio book with the book and go through the two things together. Like use one, use the audio book as a guide. And I, I promise you, I would have been. If not a better student, cer- certainly a happier student, if that had been a thing when I was going through. Audiobooks, it's like a, truly a gift from the heavens for me. I could, you get, yeah. So it's, yeah. Can we you remember your favorite? Way. I remember my favorite professor from college. And I was just so blown away when he would like show us little clips of things and then stop and talk it out. And then he'd be like, okay, and here's a, here's the music from the, and, and, okay, here's the sound of the crickets in this part of the world. And you're like, wait, what? Like, what? <laughs> what? Where are you putting me? You're transporting me, sir. Like the guy, it's just amazing. And that sort of different stimuli, I mean, works wonders if that's how you learn. So anyway, um, moving right along. Well, sorry, I'm going to jump in too quickly. Yeah, yeah, go ahead, boss. One, since we've been talking about uh, private schools and Ivy League, I would like to give a shout out to the U of I, I L L I N I. And two, uh, my favorite line during the uh, suggestion box was Ted very quickly looking at uh, one of the suggestions and saying, well, I'm not going to say that word out loud. Yeah. We know what that one. We know. I 100% know which one that was. Really? You know which one that was? Oh, you don't know which one it is, Coach? I, There's a British term that is a real no-no in America. That is, they say it every third word. If you're, Does it well. begin with a C? <laughs> it certainly does, my friend. Oh, there you go. Okay, got it. Got it. Got it. Got it. And actually, it makes sense that he would say, I'm not saying that one. Like, that exactly. one's not for him to say. That makes a ton of sense, actually. Yep. Right. Because he's like, he's still, 
the guy that tapes up nipples. I'm not, <laughs> not, I know I'm throwing that out there. No, 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 no. That's exactly <laughs> a little bit is. of a, little bit of a, yeah, anyway. That's right. And I feel like he's uh, not going to tell the British lads that they're not allowed to say it because that is okay for them. Mm-hmm. Still not okay for him. Not going to do it. Yeah. I'm not even going to say that word out loud. <laughs> so we got a lot of wordplay stuff with coach beard. How do you guys like the boot and the boot and the boot and the, like, does that stuff again? It's a different type of joke, mm-hmm. but they just put it into color the you know, as background color. I don't think it's my favorite part of their relationship, but uh, but I'm okay with it. I mean, I already explained that I'm starting to crush out on Coach Beard. What do you think did it? Uh, obviously, I'm a fan of the boot and the boot and the boot. Wow, wow, I, I like it. that. Okay, good. I, I like it. I, I, I again, I think it, it speaks to how they get they get each other though, like that. I think that's the part I have fun about or fun with. I could listen to two people who know everything about name it. Right. But as long as they're into it and I can see the energy between them getting it, like I, I've been at dinners where the two other people got into whatever they got into and I'm having the time of my life just sort of watching them be into it, even though I may only be getting every third sentence. So I, I feel a little bit that way. I'm always playing catch up. I never solve the. I never solve it as fast as Coach Beard does, and they they move on in the conversation before I could do it. But I I like that they do it and that they get each other that way. Yeah, I just that's, like it. I'm that's so funny. I, I'm going to show up for a pun every time. <laughs> every time it's going to make me laugh. I I used to have in my Twitter bio like puns are awful. I, it was it was one of the key things about me was how much I hated puns. I had it right up like on the flag. Not a huge fan of it. If I ever come back. And once we get to season three and I ever come back and do a rewatch to mock these episodes, this is going to be where my ire comes in is, is the shtick between them that may not be as believable to me down the road as I'm willing to allow it to be right now, if that makes any sense. You know, I have to say that one of the things that I am proudest of accomplishing in my life is that I have convinced my friends and family to use the word pun intentional which is when you intentionally make a pun. I've, I've, I've sandwiched both of those things into it. And now people say, sorry, that was pun intentional. Oh my God. Oh my God. You're, I, you're never invited to like any family event of mine. If yeah. that never caught on with my family, I would cry. Every pun intentional. Pun uh, intentional. Oh, uh, that's, that's no painfully Midwestern. It's been real. I think I am not on the show anymore. No. You're the boss. Are you kidding me? I might not be on the show anymore. I've never been happier in my life. He, uh, the joy coach, that the, coach, the, the, the he joy knows the pain. That he my, knows the pain. Oh yeah. my god. The the joy it brought you, boss, and the pain I know Coach Castleton is in. I don't know that we will never speak again. Like seriously, like I will call him for his birthday and start with the word pun intentional. That is these things just they beautiful. affect me more. They shouldn't. I should be able to shrug them off. Oh. It should be I should be a real Ted Lasso about it, but it gets to me. Oh, this and bit this and bitmojis. Well someday we'll have we'll have Coach <laughs> Coach Bishop talk about how much everyone in my fantasy football league sends me bits bitmojis <laughs> when I'm like, why are grown men using pictures? <laughs> Cartoons. I don't under I anyway, moving right along. Okay, so we got um Higgins can't find out which where the biscuits are from. We talked a little bit. Three's a crowd. And Ted says, that's a crowd I don't mind being smack dab in the middle of, buddy. Then he does the joke at the OJ trial over here. 
I don't want to go past Moon Dance being oh, a fun, still a fun dance to do. Moonwalk being a, a still a fun dance to do. Despite some recent headlines, still a fun dance to do. <laughs> And he moonwalks so well. I don't understand why they didn't give us a, a full body shot. Like obviously uh, he is doing it. Oh yeah, he's good. he's good. He's such a good. I mean, physical comedy that is my 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 weakness. But let me jump Chris, in here. Chris I think Farley he, he, from falling he, through any table is my joy. Yeah. Sorry about that, Coach. Thanks. I didn't mean to step on that. Would you say? No, that? no, no. I'm just saying, like, I like if you want to take me out of any mood, like I could be, you could, yeah, I could be coming from like an amputation of one of my limbs, and if you show me Chris Farley falling through a table, that's it. I'm instantly in a good mood. <laughs> but the beauty I love, I mean, in that whole bit, you know, soft shoe, the whole thing, I thought like beautifully delivered, fantastic job. But it, again, it got to the core of what I think works about the show. I think if he really were clueless and were really doing that in a clueless way, it wouldn't be as funny and it would be a sketch. But because he's he is actually making a point, which is, look, you know, I do need to waltz in here. So whatever you want to call it, we all got to get on the same page. And he does yeah, make an actual serious yeah. organizational development point. Like he could have made it in a Brooks Brothers suit with the $5,000 tile. It doesn't matter. The core of it is correct. So that, again, I keep coming back to that with him. It's, he's not clueless. He's the opposite of that. And that's part of why I, I think that's part of why I for, forgive might be the wrong word, but we're in another show. I'd be annoyed by the boot and the boot and the boot, maybe because it's like to what end? I feel like he uses all of that to do this amazing thing he's doing. So it's a, it's a tool. It's not just like, He's goofy. Look how wacky he's going to be in this scene. Absolutely right. Absolutely right. And he and he's got a plan. He's a man with a plan. I mean, this is he he heads her off at the pass. He doesn't even let her get her her shtick out, her spiel about why this is. He's like, hey, listen, this is what I got. He cuts her right off and redirects right away, and you know, disarms her with comedy. But it's a lot of Sun Tzu in what he does. He's just real Ned Flandersy about it. Which, which, <laughs> <laughs> sort of wonderful and sort of brutal. Uh, we are then, uh, as we said, Caesar, you later. Great moment that we've already covered since boss just she just jumps wherever. She's like, oh, I want to talk about episode nine right now. It's fine. It's yeah, totally I, fine. I want to talk. I'm all over the place. Jump. It's all I can do to stay in I, the episode. How, how hard is it knowing that we've seen all those other episodes? I know. We, we could go so many. I'm very impressed with all of us right now. Anyway, some, next scene is somebody ought to check this thing's prostate, which I laughed out loud at. I was like, Absolutely. that is such a clever, mm-hmm. such a clever joke. That's so good. Um, then they have the scene where they all chip in for Sam. It's got a face. He's got a face. And it's got a face. But Nate corrects him that it's gendered he. Yes, <laughs> I'm like, and he says, "You put the money in his mouth." Like he, uh, coach jumps on board with it. Lasso's on board. It's fine with ever whatever gender distinction that Nate has chosen for the the donation box. <laughs> and of course, Jamie doesn't put money in. What does he do? Oh, he puts his chewing gum in there because he's a prick. He's such a jerk. This is maybe another split. Um, I-, I like a man who will ruin my credit. I do not like men who are unknowingly, not unknowingly cruel, but I've said before that in order to be a really good asshole, you have to know how to use those abilities for good. And Jamie is the kind of guy who knows how to be super mean and cruel and never uses it for good and never has an awareness about himself. And it's why right after that, when coach calls him out super quietly 
And, you know, he doesn't try to shame him. He just says, oh, why'd you go and do that? Like, Jamie knows he screwed up. He knew that it wasn't actually funny, but he was going to do it anyway because he's a bully. I would describe it as casually cruel. Yes. You yeah, know, and, and, and I'm with you where it's like, you see, you know, <laughs> like really just as you go, like just for no good reason. Like, like I feel like Jamie, given the right circumstances, would trip a toddler. Like, I just feel oh, like for sure. You know, yeah. Uh, that I don't know if he would do that because I don't know if he'd care enough to try. But but I, <laughs> I I I you know what I mean? He's just so vacuous, and um, it's a real commentary. And I and I feel like a much more of a generational commentary about Jamie and maybe in that way millennials than although twenty two. How old is Jamie? Yeah, could, no, could he's be Gen a, Z. Gen Z, yeah. One of the biggest commentaries that that the show, and this may be only uh, on this podcast, it might be only obvious to me. Huge commentary on the quaffed nature of soccer players. I don't know if you guys watch enough soccer to recognize this, mm-hmm. but dudes have hairstyles in in the, yes. in the Premier League, the Champions League. These guys, they come out looking looking tight, and their hair is on point for every match, which feels like it belies the. You know, you think like with head balls and things like that, mm-hmm. headers. But no, no, these guys. I don't know. Were you guys were you guys aware of any of this? Are you so- enough of soccer fans to know that this is a dynamic of the of the sport? Not really. As you just jumped, as you said it, I thought of I, I like immediately pictured Ronaldo and thought, <laughs> oh yeah, I guess that's true. So I, yeah, it's, but I wouldn't. Yeah, it's not it's it. not limited to him. They have dye jobs. They have corn row. You know, they have all kinds of different t- cool dreads. Like they have some great hairdos. But these guys are they looking fresh before? <laughs> like when Matt when the first whistle blows for that match, everybody's looking like a runway model. It's really it's interesting. I I feel like they're making some commentary on that too. I think there's definitely a commentary. Somehow we didn't cover this when we talked about the first episode, which is astounding because we talked so much about that episode for so long. But um, one of the things that I found really interesting about Ted saying there's that fellow who bends it like himself is that David Beckham, I think, and I don't know that much about soccer, but I think that he's the one that sort of changed soccer so that you could have the fancy haircut, that Jamie could get his chest waxed. And that's not just a thing that his teammates don't make fun of him about, but they're like, yeah, you got to go get your shirt, uh, chest waxed. I think it's really interesting that David Beckham is the one that did that, that he would have been somebody who had a huge influence on Jamie, but that Ted only knows about him because he was in a movie about two women playing soccer that was called right. Bend It Like Beckham. Like Indian, Indian one. Right. Exactly. Yeah. I don't even know to how, how to unpack everything that's involved in that, but it, like, Everything you're 100 you're 100 percent right that Beckham changed the game though I will in his defense he is I mean he is beautiful good heavenly God I mean <laughs> Jesus Christ you know, it's on, um, it's on he, lo- he makes Tom Brady look like a shoe and everybody oof. loves Tom Brady so uh, okay oh no, not you no I mean okay right right, um, right. not everybody loves Tom Brady right I'll jump but in he, here and say one of my favorite things that Posh Slice has ever done is when she was answering 100 questions for Vogue, they said, who would, if you could have dinner with anybody, who would it be? And she said, David Beckham. And you know what? She's not wrong. I understand it. I'd have dinner with him too. Fair enough. Uh, man, it's Brendan Gleeson for me, but I mean, okay, whatever. <laughs> I mean, what, you know, that, or, or Wayne Gretzky. I don't, I mean... These are these are easy questions. All right, let's move on. <laughs> so, um, 
Jamie doesn't buy in, literally doesn't buy in. Coach, you want to talk about that, that he literally fits? Yeah, I mean, I just, again, just think they, they, you know, no wasted motion, right? So he literally doesn't buy in and not makes a production of not buying in. And, of course, if he had just chosen not to contribute, I, I don't I don't see Ted forcing him to, right? But in a way, he said, look at me, I'm not buying in. Putting the gum in there is not him saying, you know, keep it moving, Nate. I don't want to be a part of this. It's I've got to make a production. I've got to insult it. And I think that's why Ted addresses it. So it's, you know, I think we can watch some of these things. And I certainly feel like I, with this show, will keep digging and keep going farther and farther. And there's likely a point where everyone will turn to me and say, yeah, I don't think they meant to put that all in there. You're just you're seeing it. That for sure, I feel confident is there. A hundred percent that they made that choice. And I think it's, it's true in terms of what's happening. You, you're watching everyone else buy in. We, um, have come a long way as, as a civilization, but there are a couple ways that you're still allowed to make fun of people that will someday be verboten, but right now they're still valid. One is, one is fat shaming, which is just like constant and you can still get away with it. And another one that is very subtle that people don't get. I feel like it's not on the radar yet. Is the joke that Jamie says about, you know, the hirsute nature of Roy's body. <laughs> and he says, Hey, if you're going to jump in the shower, you want to take your sweater off first, pal. That is, so I have this theory that our civilization views hairless men as somehow superior or like a, I just feel like if you look through all the leaders of nations and Fortune 500 CEOs and things like that, you don't find a guy with Homer Simpson's five o'clock shadow. It just, you just very, very difficult to find a really, really successful man with a thick, like a thick beard. And, uh, or, you know, like a, hmm. even if he's shaved, like at that beard. And just a thing of mine, it may, I could be totally wrong, but I, I, for me, I was like, I bristled a little bit when I was like, uh, when Jamie said, I was like, you little prick, like you're going to go have your body waxed and because you're meeting up to some ha- weird hairless ferret standard of masculinity. <laughs> like it's like some weird, you know, like I, I don't even know what that is. I don't know, like some metrosexual. I don't really know. I don't know what it is. <laughs> yeah, whatever. It's just like this little hairless weenie. And um, I was like. I am always with Roy anyway, because I'm as angry as Roy, but I was really with Roy. I was like, I don't know how Roy doesn't kill him right there. I, man, if somebody said that to me, it's crazy. And then I also thought like, Jamie is very lucky that he ended up a soccer player, that he ended up a football player, F-U-T-B-O-L, because if he was a hockey player, uh, he'd be dead. He would be dead by now. Like Like one of those jokes, one of those things where if he said to Sam, on the on the ice, um, hey, this is where Sam died. Everyone would laugh. That would be funny. But like if he kept it up and it it would become instantly not funny. And then someone would punch him and reset the balance on the team. So I just think it's interesting. Anyway. Well, it's interesting that you say that piece <clears throat> because for me it felt like Jamie's a boy. And, yeah. and I and I and that's the way I read I because I, I think you have something on what you said. Like as you went into it, I was like thinking about characters and those dynamics, and I think you're onto something. So I'm, I'm not going away from what you're saying, but my experience of the scene, the scene and the dynamic is like Roy is a man, you know. Like people listen, people were kind of scared of him. Like in the context of, and I put that like in quotes or italics or something, but like. I feel like Roy is presented as like a man and he's, you know, got the hairy chest to prove it. 
and to me, Jamie, Jamie's waxed chest is him like not growing up because part of growing up as a man generally is there's going to be some hair on you. Like that's just part of how we grow. Right. But he's going to, he's going to fake that that's not so. It's interesting that you saw that because I saw boy versus man in that moment. Yeah. I'll, I'll say as a, uh, a woman approaching her middle age who is attracted to men, Roy should have a shirt off all of the time. 100%. <laughs> Bravo, sister. I'm with you. Very into all that happening. Um, and also, I, I do think that there is a major difference between being a hairless boy and being a hairy man. And as my attraction has moved from the hairless to the hairy, I think everybody should have a beard, at least. And also, if you wanted to go for like a, a shaved side haircut and a hairy chest with that, I'm on board for all those things. Throw is, that we're going to have to make a photo book. I love love where you're going with this. So. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, all right. So anyway, we're in the we're in the um, we move from there to the the um, what do you call? Oh, my God. I can't think of the word. You uh, the, the thinking meeting, about Roy's chest. Still. The meeting. It's got me all <laughs> it's got me all verklempt. The press conference. So we're in the press conference. Crystal, a palace made out of crystal seems mighty fragile, if you ask me. Uh, he compares offsides to the, prostit- <laughs> the Supreme Court's designation of prostitution. So he's not dumb. I just he's not dumb. Now I think well, the show gives away a little bit of its. Uh, oh, go ahead. We're just to jump coach? in there, coach. I think he's again not dumb interpersonally. Basically, the offsides thing is like one of those things. In, a, in all sports, have them like these things that are kind of gray and kind of you know. It's a it's a travel in basketball, right? Like depending on who you ask and was the foot down, whatever. And to and it's it is a complete setup of a question. And rather than do the head on thing of like, hey, you're not going to get me. Or falling right into the trap and trying to describe it and then have the room explode into you don't know what you're doing. He is able to very smoothly sidestep it, get a smile, own the room, and move on to the next question. So I like it, it's Ted again not being a hasty as as he might let off that that's all he is. So we we continue with the press conference. Um, we get a great. There's no. No small roles, only small actors. We intro Ernie Lowndes, who's a just a gross reporter from The Sun, played by Craig Conway. And the show tips its political hat a little bit because as soon as, uh, as, soon as Ernie Lowndes introduces himself, Ernie Lowndes from The Sun, did you notice that everyone in the room groaned? Oh, yeah. I don't yeah. Know, you know anything. Do you know anything about The Sun? Guess who owns The Sun? Murdoch, right? Oh, it's yeah. got to be Murdoch, yeah. Yeah. So anyway, I thought that was great. Uh, Craig Conway is so gross. What's the word for snake? Like ser- ser- serpentine. Mm-hmm. I mean, he's just so ugh, so gross. His <laughs> his his physicality, his mannerism, his slowness in turning. It was just great body control. I thought it was a great. Again, no small roles, only small actors. He kills it, and he puts poor Rebecca on the spot. And I just get so blown away. By her control and her, there's uh, listen. This has always been attractive to me. So I've always enjoyed demure people, and I like when people don't buckle under pressure. And so her being visibly sort of shocked, stunned in that moment, flash bulbs start going off, and she says, "And all this time, I thought men couldn't multitask." And I just want to like slow clap and be like, <laughs> "Damn it, that is." 
bravo, girl. You know, like, damn, that's a brutal situation to be in. Boom. Well, it's so- oh, sorry, go ahead. I actually, I'll just say this quickly because I wanted to send it over to you. In rewatching the episode, knowing we were going to have this conversation, I specifically wanted to hear your take on that moment because I feel like it's going to be one I can never get to. I'm just very curious what your your experience of that moment was. Well, I think what was most interesting was that even though we haven't met him yet, there didn't seem to be any indication that people were asking Rupert about his affairs mm-hmm. and how he responded to them. Like, there's a part of this that is intentionally gross because you want to see somebody break down because that's going to be a great clip online or whatever. But it's also that men are expected to cheat. Powerful men are expected to cheat. Um, I have heard people say before that uh, their justification is a rich man is entitled to a mistress. And so I think that the way that this is framed is that because it is expected from him, we are going to find out what she did in order to encourage it. And that, it sucks so bad. It's the worst. I almost had to swear about it because it's so terrible. I have to admit that uh, infidelities, I don't judge as strongly as other people, I think. I'm a little bit more forgiving with that stuff. But the fact that they wanted to see how emotional she was at the revelation of another infidelity is what's so gross about it. They were putting her in the spot. They were doing it in part because she's a woman and because we don't expect to hold men to the same standard. I mean, it's just gross. And if you, this is the thing, if you're trying to be an evolved, you know, more evolved human being of any, of any gender, it just should be gross. It should be gross. And um, somehow, you know, it's this pincers that the press localize onto her as if she's done anything wrong as if she's somehow complicit in it and she's not. And it, man, it, it like boils my blood <laughs> and it makes me so happy for her and proud of her. And it makes me, this is why you don't hate her. In my opinion, it's why you just see, you can see it. And what brilliant acting um, by Hannah Waddingham where you, where you just see it in her face and tiny little movements of her mouth and choices that she, how she holds her shoulders. And I'm just like, God, bravo. It's so good. Yeah, she's absolutely brilliant in it. Um, I will say one of the things that got me, I thought that her comeback line about men not being able to multitask was great. And I loved it for Rebecca and I love that she was able to do it. I will say that if you have a couple of women talking about issues that women predominantly face, one of the things that bothers us a lot is how everything that we do is supposed to be effortless. Like, when we are complimented on how we look, we're supposed to be we're supposed to respond with, oh, this old thing, or mm. I woke up like this, or any of the other things. And so, yes, I was so proud of her for being able to do that and come up with that so quickly. But also, it underplays this idea that women are supposed to do everything without putting any effort into yes. it. She's supposed to yes. have that line handy. Yes. It's just harder. It's always been harder. <laughs> it's like yeah. you see you see some shows about women in the fifties or something, how to be like happy homemaker, and you're like, oh my god. Like I get I start to get like like hives when I think about it. <laughs> you know, just like yeah. literally what it takes for a man to get ready to go out 
to a night with a dinner with friends. What does it take for me to get ready as opposed to what it takes for Juliana to get ready? Right. And what are the expectations? I could literally walk in in a tank top and people would be like, whatever. I'm not, I don't own any tank tops because I think they're horrific. But I could is the point. And, and it would be, uh, it would be somehow acceptable. But my God, if there's a hair out of place, and, not, and it's not like, thankfully the world is changing and, and, uh, boss, some of your, of your tweets during the pandemic have been so nice about how, People are like kind of just like bra optional on Ugh. Zoom calls and things like that. It's you know it's we're we're never it's going back, guys. The, the lingerie industry is going to have to go bankrupt because <laughs> I, I can't do it. I can't go back. I Good. Can't, I can't wear jeans. Good. And I can't wear bras anymore. They're dead to me. I saw that. I saw someone tweet about that. An author that I follow, who she's just great. And she's like, hey, I wore jeans for the first time today. Why did we ever do this to ourselves? And I was like, good for you. I love it. I love it. Yeah. Love it. It's all It's all because of Rebecca I with her cool line. really hope that in the distant future, when historians are studying us, the thing that they understand the least are Spanx. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> just, just like, see just snapping them on mannequins, trying to figure them out. Yeah, just like it's obviously a torture device of some sort, but we don't understand what sort of <laughs> evil person came up with them. Uh, that's so good. Um, all right, so I I think I may have gotten confused because this is when Rebecca closes the laptop. Is in this scene? I don't remember if she did it in the earlier scene. She may have been looking at something else, but she closes the laptop now. And Ted, this is the scene where Ted has a care package from from his son, and he gives her an army man. I liked that he showed her the homemade kazoo, and he's like, "You can't have that. There's only one." And she kind of goes, "Oh!" Like she kind of, she kind of liked <laughs> the homemade kazoo. She's like a little disappointed. I was like, "That's so good." Then this beautiful moment, uh, he takes a sip of. The, I was blown away because I don't open any food product unless I'm going to use it. Like mm-hmm. it kind of gave me hives. Like mm-hmm. he got the barbecue sauce, opened it up right away, licked it. I'm like, oh my God, I wish I were that carefree in my life. I'm so stilted. Like, I'd be like, oh, don't open that tomato sauce, kids. Like, <laughs> do we got to use it? But he does that and he's like, don't you, you have some kind of food that teleports you home and kind of makes you feel all warm and fuzzy. And then they do that great insert of her looking at the, the biscuits. Of her looking at the biscuits, but also of him noticing her looking yes. at the biscuits. Yes, yes. Because he knows that he's making headway. And he knows. For whatever reason, she needs to make him feel he isn't, right? It's both things. Because he's, yes, I noticed that you looked, but also I noticed that clearly that is the answer to my question, and you have made a conscious decision to say different. Like, I think that's important, too, um, as he's taking it all in. Right. I think, I mean, the fact that he said she's got some fences, but you have to hop over them. He knows that she is intentionally keeping him at a distance. Yes. Uh, and so I think that that was maybe more reassuring to him than anything else. I would hope that I don't think that he would be focusing on the fact that she is trying to keep him out. I think that he would be focused on the bits that he is able to move the needle on that. And I'd say he, he's happy to hop over the fences at a pace that's kind of reasonable and he's certainly never going to crash through the fences, right? He's never going to destroy them, knock them out of the way. He's going to hop over them. You're allowed to have them. I want to get to know you, so I'm going to hop over some of them. I think it speaks to his way of, his panda way of dealing with boundaries (laughs) that he would say, okay, cool. That's fine. You don't have to tell me that you love the biscuits. I know it. You know it. 
We'll figure it out later. I mean, he might crash through her fences if she makes a really great pun. <laughs> it's torture. It's torture. Pun intentional um, by boss. Uh, <laughs> I'm going to be doing Krusty the Clown groans this whole fu- Ugh, It's going to be terrible, terrible listening to that. I, I think at this point we should have a, a like 30-second pause in the podcast just so that the audience thinks we really did call it quits over this. <laughs> I like it. Yeah. <laughs> All right, fine. Let's go on. Let's move on. We'll try again. Goodbye. Yeah, we'll do it. Fine. I My heart bled for Rebecca when she looked down at the biscuits because I'm sure it wasn't intentional. One of her own – the pitfalls of her own psyche right now is she feels like she has nothing. But she certainly doesn't have something that she can identify at this point as comfy. You know, that's, that's or what did he say? He didn't say comfy. He says warm and fuzzy. And there's a there's a dearth of that in her life right now. And so I just felt badly for her at that point where it's like that the first thing that occurred to her was was the biscuits. It seems like to keep a certain level of appearances up, she's probably inhibited her eating on some level over the years. She's probably you know, when he first gives her the cookies, she's like, Oh no, no, I don't like I like I my read was I don't eat cookies, like I don't actually do that. And, um, I, I, you know, I've seen many examples of, of uh, people in this situation to keep up appearances end up with eating disorders or, or things that are, you know, less than ideal with regard to, to restrictions. And I, I, maybe I'm getting a whiff of that and maybe I'm just putting it there myself, but, um, uh, my heart just bleeds for her. I just love her. I, I mean, to, sorry, go ahead. You got it. But I was just going to say, I, I, you know, you tell us not to jump forward, but then I so clearly want to talk about episode four right now when, <laughs> when you're hinting at all of this. So mental marks. It's just called we're foreshadowing. We're going to circle back to this point when we reach that amazing episode. Yes, ma'am. Now um, she suggests that. She has an idea. She suggests Ted goes talks to Keeley. He says, thanks, boss. I appreciate you. And now we get to the Keeley shoot where she's the lion. And before I forget, let's do a call out for no small roles, only small actors. Anuska Rapp. Anuska Rapp played the panda girl. Oh who, Great her job. Only, her only part, right, was to turn and look homely and terrible. And she killed it. And good job, Anuska. You know, I liked, you know, the fuck I'm famished. Most lines are is so, it's so, that is corny, <laughs> but I really liked it. And then when he said, is the food free? Is it free? Is it free? It's such a funny thing from a Premier League manager making, you know, theoretically, they make millions. I really enjoyed the Ted feeding Keely oh. scene. There was something so nice about it. And maybe, maybe, maybe. For me, it's the absence of sexual yes. conflict or sexual anything. For, these two people are truly not attracted to each other in that way, but they are completely attracted to each other as people. And just the platonic nature of it and the good-natured stuff between them, man, that was a scene I really loved. Well, I mean, it's it's intimate, right? Which is a, which a word we use almost as like a placeholder for sexual sometimes, but instead of it being any of that, it really, he is feeding her. Like it just doesn't get much more basic and personal right. than that. Uh, speaking of Maslow, but it's somehow like you just, you know, that's truly what it is. And they're able to be imperfect and silly in front of each other and all that kind of stuff. So I, that, yeah, I had a similar reaction to it. And I think it makes 
the photographer and all like that whole element of what's going on, I think it makes it more gross. Because let's say she shifts and her dress kind of moves and he looks down at her chest or whatever, like whatever it is, then it's like, ah, uh, yeah, that was kind of, but it, it's, right, you know, but right. it's like, oh, you, this is really being constructed. He could, like, he's literally just getting the ketchup off of her mouth because she's got to go take more pictures in a minute. So yeah, so I think the innocence of it, it did, it did very much grab me and it made me like each of them more than I did going into the scene. You're talking about you're talking about Maslow, and this scene like basically has most most of. I mean, it's crazy. You have him feeding her, which is like the bottom tier, right? Mm-hmm. And if I remember, it's like mm-hmm. food and shelter, basically, right? And then it moves up to like self actualization at the top. So you're like, you know, he gives her like the safety, the you know, the I mean, all these different little things are happening in this scene, and it's uh, I don't know, it's kind of a remarkable scene. Just two people. And then it was so um, corrupted by the paparazzi. I've had to deal with paparazzi producing films and things. And, um, oh, my God. <laughs> oh, my God. They are a different breed, man. It is a whole different animal. And this guy in this show, we should call out the actor, but I'll look it up. He did not feel to me like the ones I've had to deal with, um, who kind of fancy themselves like road warriors with cameras. It was just so gr- made so gross and so- something it's, it wasn't. When you see it shot through his like subjective camera. Yeah. I, I mean, I already gushed about the scene and how much I love it and how much I love Keely and Ted together and wanting them to hang out. The corruption of it. it, it so one of the things that I've mentioned to people before is that it, usually in my relationships with men, I go one of two ways. I'm either annoying little sister or borderline sexual harasser. And I'm not sure why I fall into those two groups, but that's kind of what I do. At what point in that in that in that uh, that sort of swing, swinging pendulum do they destroy your credit? I'm curious. <laughs> well, uh, that's when the uh, sexual harassment stops being borderline. Uh, <laughs> so for me, watching the scene where they seemed to just be enjoying each other's company so much and building. A relationship and a rapport and figuring each other out. And then also, uh, you know, dealing with Jamie and how best to reach him and Ted going to her as sort of an expert on something that he's not able to gauge himself. It was so great. And I knew that the photos were going to be a problem. Even as the scene was happening, I figured that there was something bad that was about to come out of it. So, so super disappointing that it was this idea that there's something nefarious or something nefarious yeah nefarious i think is the word that i'm looking for i mean he's wiping he's wiping ketchup off the edge of her mouth like right at the edge of her mouth it's like the closest like parallel that you could find is like parent child almost Mm -hmm. it's so loving and nice innocent wonderful it wasn't like you know there's just no nothing gross about it at all it's just awesome so anyway great scene and i loved the what we say motivates him and is there a second option? <laughs> <laughs> that was great. That was great. Now we have the, the 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 match: Crystal Palace versus AFC Richmond. They do a little happy birthday Sam celebration. Celebration. It was really nice. Uh, they give him a picture of Baba Tunde, and um, you guys know who that is. It's a Polish Nigerian professional wrestler. And then the thing I really liked is, you know, they give him chin chin, and you know these things that these it's a Nigerian treat, and he thanks them in Yoruba. He thanks mm-hmm. them in his native tongue. I just thought that was such a cool choice. And I think it speaks to the, I mean, you know, I got the different 
angles on this thing. I love the show so much, but the organizational development piece around it, I mean, in a very literal way, like that is inclusion at work, right? He could say it that way. And there's a version of that scene where Rory goes, oi, you know, in English, right? But no, we know what thank you sounds like in Yoruba or English or any other language. And it sounds like that. And everybody hears it. And everybody's, you know, spoken or unspoken is saying you're welcome. I, I just, to me, that was such a, um, the gift was, but also that it, it may, I don't know if it's the first time we hear him say something in, in Yoruba. But certainly it's, it's, it spoke to me that he felt that was the best way to communicate it and that the room could feel it and hear it. And you didn't need, I don't, I don't need to actually know what that phrase means. I know what it means. Um, right. I thought that was a great piece of it for the team. That's exactly right. I'm going to call out two things. One, uh, this might be my bias, but I would say that Jamie might be the one who would say oi in English and that Roy would be cool with it. Yes, and- you're right. <laughs> because man, I hate Jamie right now. I know he gets better, and I, I, I'm I'm opening myself up to Jamie the way that Ted would encourage me to. But right now, I hate him. And the the other thing, the um, army man that Ted uh, gives to Sam, yes. and then that scene where he says, "Do you mind if I don't keep this because I'm not particularly fond of your military?" And Ted's response is, "Oh, right, imperialism and everything." Imperialism, right? That was so good. He wasn't offended, and also he, he, he is smart. He does know what's going on. He's not unaware of the way that America and Americans seem to people in other parts of the world. It's such right. a good scene. I right, it. right. It, it doesn't occur to him at first, but when it once it does, he's not offended. There's no ego. He's like, oh yeah, sure, like no problem. Okay, I got it. Right, and, yeah. and and in this scene, you also get Jamie being, and Jamie is a wanker. I mean, he he oh. is the definition of a wanker, and. This, you know, Sam's dad used to pinch his ears for good luck, and Jamie's like, "Give me a fucking break!" And you wonder if that's some foreshadowing about whatever Jamie's relationship with his father. So, moving on, they walk out to the field. I mean, this is like your trailer moment for them pitching the show. As they walk out to the field, they're standing there, Beard and and Lasso, and eighty thousand people are calling them him a wanker in unison. Oh my god, I I love that moment so much. Um, especially with the anticipation that he might turn all these people. He is unfazed, is the definition of unfazed. He just takes it in. It's not even like, I was going to say he's like a sponge and he absorbs it all, but he doesn't internalize any of it. He's just like, it's just what it is at this point. He knows what phase of the procedure he's at, and he just just takes it in and doesn't face him, doesn't face Beard, and then that's it. But also, And they apologize for the fruit, the fruity language, you know? But, but I think built into that moment is what? Your flies down, right? Which is, again, to me, like, it's it, he doesn't do it by himself. He and Beard are a team. And right. Beard is there and is the one who tells him, we got to go, we're going to be late. Your flies down, right? Like he's the one who's tethered and you got to get some sleep. You're not, yeah, yeah, you're going to be jet lagged, right? Exactly. You know what I mean? And I think again, they, they show it there as they march out onto that field. They are truly a team. They are truly a team. And the show again wisely uses the Greek chorus to let us know exactly how everyone feels about him, which is everyone's yelling wanker at him at the pub as well. And, and May yells, Oi, give him a chance. And then they're blown out four to one. Four to one is a blowout in soccer. So Wait, but, uh, but we do find out that Sam has a good game after. Hold on. And- I'm interrupting because you, oh, yeah. you, you glossed over one of the best lines of the show, 
The oh. announcer says, um, and we've got the crowd involved. Sorry for those at home for the language. And then it cuts to the bar where everybody is chanting wanker, 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 too. And it's hysterical. <laughs> yeah. Oh, we got to intro Arlo White and Chris Powell, who are playing themselves as the announcers. It's such a it's such a trope. And it's so great. We have, we have a friend who who uh, directed the movie Dodgeball. And I remember how great it was when he cast uh, uh, Gary Cole and um, uh, J- uh, Jason Bateman. Jason Bateman. As, and Jason Bateman, Gary Cole is always good. It doesn't matter what you put in front of Gary Cole. He's, per- he's perfect. He's a perfect actor. He's perfect. And I remember Jason Bateman toyed with the lines a lot more than Gary did. But like it was, um, oh my God, so so the lines were, were amazing that were written. But then Bateman would throw in a bunch of other things that made it even better. And that trope of the, the announcer, you know, at a sporting event and how they affect your enjoyment of the game, it's they're important. And so I thought these guys did a did a nice job. And again, we'll see them later in later episodes. But yeah, they they apologize for the fruity language. And Sam ultimately has a good game. And you gotta think that it has to do with the mm-hmm. him feeling more at home. And Jamie scores an injury time. You guys know what injury time is, by the way? I my no idea. my very basic understanding of it, correct me if I'm wrong, throughout the running time, there's tracking of time that was lost to injury or other weird timeout, and then it's tacked on to the end of the half. That's my understanding of it. Exactly right. Exactly right. The end of the, it happens twice, the end of the half and the end of the game. So you have 45-minute halves, and at the 90-minute mark, the game is over, except the referee keeps the official time. And so the official on the on the field... You're waiting. You say like, oh, there's probably plus four minutes, plus six minutes of injury time. They also call it stoppage time. You know, so they kind of have a sense about how much injury time there is. And you're just waiting for the the ref to blow the whistle three times, which signals the uh, the end of the match. Yeah, that's what Jamie scored in basically, you know, the game was virtually over. And and it works here because if you're if you score a goal when they're when you're down by four, that um that's such a that's a yawner it doesn't really matter that's why they say it's inconsequential some of the best matches i've ever seen are somebody it's one to one or something and somebody scores an injury time there was a recent i don't know was it the world cup i'm trying to remember the there's there's matches that you see where it's like someone ties it up in the 89th minute and then they score the go ahead goal in, in, in stoppage time and people lose their it's like the greatest thing it's the best thing about about the sport so so yeah but in this case being down by four goals it's nothing Ted pulls Jamie in, tells him he's truly great. He's the best athlete he's ever coached. He says, if you could just turn that me into an us, and I'm going to hand over the the floor to Coach Bishop at this point, who basically is Ted Lasso. (laughs) Well, it's funny. And as I was watching, I was sort of like, oh, my God. Oh, my God. This was definitely an oh, my God moment. Semi-short version, watching uh, When We Were Kings, uh, which is the story about the the fight in Zaire between Muhammad Ali and George Foreman. George Plimpton says that Muhammad Ali, as far as he understands it, has set created the shortest poem ever. And it was very simply, me, we. And I have taken that, and I now have made that into a chant for any team I've coached pretty much over, I don't know, however many years now, but over... Over the last 15 years, any team I've coached, that's just a thing. So when we put our hands in, uh, rather than say team or whatever, it's me and the, the team yells, we. So th- that fundamental philosophy of I am important, the team is more important, is just at the core of things. And it's so at the core of who Ted is and how he's running things that for him to bring that up 
right there and to try to communicate it to Jamie and for us to watch Jamie start to get it, even as he resisted. Yeah, I thought the whole scene was phenomenal. And I was a little unsure of exactly how they were going to show Jamie starting to come around. Uh, My favorite acting choice in in the entire scene is that when he comes in, he like slumps onto the side of the desk and he's going to listen to whatever nonsense Ted is telling him. And Ted starts with, you're the best athlete I'm ever going to coach. And he immediately stands up. Like right away, you could see him physically responding to the positive reinforcement that Keeley told Ted he needs. And it sets up the rest of the scene so well that everything that Ted says from that point on is going to make a little impact, even if it's not that much. Uh, Roy's pissed. He's mad that we that they lost the game. Nate breaks the window. The water pressure is restored, which is a nice symbol, symbolic uh, thing about change and improvement. DJ Beardo <laughs> puts on Be- DJ Beardo puts on a little Fife Dog Q-tip coming at you. Rebecca, meanwhile, is scrolling through fire lasso posts on her Mac again. Uh, as Ted walks in to bring them cake, and he invites them down, and Rebecca says, "Where did you get those biscuits?" And of course, he won't tell. Well, if I told you, I wouldn't be able to bring them anymore. Then outside the party, you get Trent Krim hoping to get a, a you know a quote from Jamie, and Jamie almost almost sticks the landing. Did you notice though that it was two opposing players walking by that turn him? So talk about that. So he gives the quote right answer to Trent Krim. Right, it doesn't feel comfortable, but he's trying the new thing on. Right. He's trying it on. Oh, yeah, there's 11 of us. It's not about how I feel. Right. And then he turns to walk away and two of the guys walk, two guys who I assume are uh, opposing players walk by and say that they were rubbish. And that's when I think he just can't take that, 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 that he's reminded of. No, that's how I see things. I see things through that lens and this team is rubbish and now I'm going to turn around and just be Jamie as opposed to one of the 11. So I, I feel like it's we're really watching him do the struggle and he he's almost got it but once you he doesn't have it enough that you can remove him as an ember from the flame and, and he'll keep his heat. He's not there yet. He's got it was, if, you, if you could have just kept him in there for a little while longer in that office indefinitely, maybe we could have gotten him there. But as soon as you take him out and he's out in the world with the, that influence on him again, it goes away. And it's it's an act of betrayal. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's an active oh, no. He betrayal. says like, it to do. They're all in there eating cake. The new gaffer's got music on. It's a joke is what he says. Well, so. and, and also Ted tells him, you know, to try to be an us instead of a me. And Jamie's always already told him, why would I want to be anybody other than me? He did it. They did it in reverse order. But Jamie's already made it clear that he's not interested in becoming an us. Not yet, at least. Uh, we have the little, the nice, funny little gag where Colin walks in, gets hit in the face with the water. Careful, careful son, the gaffers fix the water pressure. <laughs> and then, I don't know if you guys caught this. They walk out. And did you hear what? The, so it's him and Beard walk out of the out of the stadium and did you hear what he said to Coach Beard? He said, bird by bird. Do you guys know what that is? Yeah, no. I Okay, good. I'm glad to tell you then. Bird by Bird is a book by a- Annie Lamott, who is just one of the most wonderful people. She's a person that teaches writing. She's a writer herself. 
I haven't read Bird by Bird in years, but I, I love her. I follow her on Twitter. Everybody in the world should follow her on Twitter. She's delightful. I wish everyone in this country could be taught English by her. She's just absolutely a ray of sunshine. And she talks about, you know, the process of writing. And if I, this is, I'm reaching far back now, but she talked about, I think it was her brother, I think it was her brother, who had an overwhelming science project to do um, over the summer. And they were at the dinner table, I think, God, I'm reaching back. And, and I think he was just, the kid was overwhelmed by the size of the project, which was for him to draw birds and, and chronicle birds, I think, something like that over the summer. And his father just looks at him and he's like, you know, you just got to take it bird by bird. And that is her philosophy about how you, how you break down writing. But it really means like, you know, moment by moment, step by step, you know, it's all translatable into that. You know, the truth of it is that it's a process. And so coach is, is saying to coach Beard, bird by bird, man, like with little, little baby steps. Like I got through to Jamie a little bit today, supposedly as far as he knew, you know, Sam played better, you know, it's just, you know, the water pressure's fixed. You just got to take it step by step. And I really loved that moment. And I thought it was a great shout out to uh, Andy Lamont. It's the, it, it speaks to that slow and steady wins the wins the race. And of course, I don't have it in, in oh, front yeah. of me right this second. But the actual slogan that's on the wall, the motto that's on the wall, speaks to how we succeed, you know, steadily. And I think that's just the story of this. I don't know what y'all's smallest unit of measure is around here, you know, here, but uh, I think that's about as much headway as I may. You know, it's it's that sense of like, it's inevitable. This works. And, you know, bird by bird. So, yeah, it, it makes sense. The bird by bird makes all the sense to me, character wise, show wise, just sort of the spine of this whole thing. It's like just one foot in front of the, the other until you get there. And one bird was fixing the water pressure. Yep. Yep. Absolutely. Even though they're called the Greyhounds, they are, uh, they're, they're slower paced than the Greyhounds. <laughs> yeah. the Greyhounds. You got, you got, uh, Ted walking out and, uh, play soccer with Shannon, the soccer girl. She says you were rubbish. And he's like, yeah, maybe so. No ego. Zero. Yeah, maybe so. Like he's open to that possibility. And we shot, we shoot to Rebecca at home sitting in that. I thought it was just a cool room she was sitting in. I was like, God, it's a cool, I want to see the rest of this house. Um, sit, sitting in this room. And she's studying the the army man. Higgins sends her the pictures. Questions if she should even do this because he's Higgins, and he has some. He's he's conflicted about it. And we cut to in the middle of that, we see that Ted. The reveal that Ted is the one making the biscuits, which I was like, oh damn! I think that hit you hard, Coach. Right when when you saw that he was, didn't that have an effect on you when you saw that he was the one making the biscuits? Well, yeah, I just thought it was. It's such a nurturing thing. I mean, back to the, you know, name your favorite sports movie. I don't remember the part where Denzel bakes, you know, chocolate vanilla cupcakes and brings the team together. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> like what do you mean? He bakes the biscuits himself. Right. Right. But I mean, like, and. Right. Right. I mean, talk about like just kicking the, the concept of masculinity just right out the door. You know what I mean? That is not a theoretically you know old school masculine and not posture is i'm the one that picks the yeah and, and and not and not even adding in the piece around you like them i made them right like it's so it's such it's so much about right these right right biscuits are a thing i'm using to get to our end goal it is not about how good i am at baking it's about the fact that when this woman eats the biscuits i'll get to bond with her and we need to bond to make this thing work 
Um, but yeah, I just thought it was uh, it was another glimpse into who this guy is and the ways in which he's different than what we would assume uh, he need to be to do the job that's in front of him. It's a little little bit of Anthony Bourdain there, where different cultures can come together over a good mm-hmm. good plate mm-hmm. of food. So interesting. Go ahead, Bone. And I was gonna say one of the things. I anticipated a little bit that he was going to be the one that was secretly making them uh, because I watch way too much television and I kind of figured that that would be where they were heading with it. Um, But one of the things that it, it contrasted to me that they ended the first episode with him being alone in his apartment and not sure what to do. And he's replaced that with doing this activity that is time consuming, but hopefully will lead to connection. So it kind of shows that he is figuring out how to deal with the loneliness by forming new connections and taking yeah, that time. Yeah, he's, he's coping. He's finding a coping mechanism, right? I love that. That's cool. So as as that reveal happens, Higgins poses the question about whether the picture should be used. Right on TV, right in front of her, Rebecca sees Rupert's new old flame, and she does maybe my favorite – I mean my least favorite. <laughs> my Maybe my least favorite gesture anyone can do, which is just – Luke Skywalker's the thing over her shoulder with like a no the hell with it and throws it onto the floor. I think part of why I mean there's a, a ton of reasons to hate it, right? I mean it was such a genuine gift, it's such a sweet thing, what it was around the whole deal. I think it really speaks to the fact that at this moment and and we see an actual decision around it, people are disposable to Rebecca. She isn't just, you know, yes, it's the army man, but like she's tossing Ted. She's tossing, you know, whoever. My, I'm fixed on Rupert and my pain and we watch her toss someone overboard. So I just think she's, people are disposable to her and contrast that to Ted not bringing in, you know, hey, I made some barbecue chicken with my favorite barbecue sauce, which reminds me of home. Would you like some? No, I make you biscuits because that that's what reminds you of home. So th- there's a very stark contrast in that moment between them. And that's the protector that he gave her. And she she wants that army man on that wall. She needs that <laughs> army man on that wall. <laughs> but you know, but but what is, is she it, doing? It's funny you say that. And I is is this her saying, ah, there's no army man. Get out of here. Like in a way, did she feel she had an army man and her army man walked out or her army man was running around on her and yeah, so she's like, you know, I don't have time for kids' fantasies of army men who are going to protect me. Is that? I mean, maybe that's there. I, I hadn't thought of it until you said it that way. Yeah, maybe, uh, maybe that's that. Maybe there's some some of that there. Maybe maybe the the premise of a white knight in her life has been ex- exposed as mm-hmm. folly to to her mm-hmm. at this point. So the concept of white knighting might be something that's turned her off. I maybe have been watching too much Ted Lasso, but what struck me about the scene was that she brought the army man home with her because I thought for sure she was going to throw it away at her office. Like absolutely no way is she going to hang on to it. And then she did bring it home. She threw it away, but whatever the smallest measurement is, he's made at least that much. Headway I think her. that's a great observation. I'll that's take us back point. to the, the yeah. locker room scene. As you say that Jamie wants a piece of cake. Oh, <laughs> he says yes, no to that cake, does. but your eyes are saying yes, Jamie. You wanted some of that delicious yeah. cake that Higgins made sure we knew was delicious. And I think there's something there. You're right with Rebecca. I, I didn't read it that way. 
I didn't read it that way. I'm glad you. I'm glad you, it's an actual disagreement. I, I thought he was like appalled by the cake. Well, this is I our second like, disagreement. No, like, uh, yeah. tea's horrible. The first one is tea. Tea is horrible. No, yeah, I don't know. No, I don't know. I'm why sorry, boss. I cut you off though with my horrible joke. I, I love that joke. <laughs> um, it, never don't tell a horrible joke. I think that he wanted the cake. I think that what he was appalled about was that his teammates were willing to eat it mm. because he's upset that they are not depriving themselves the same way that he is in order to be good. Wow. I think you're very much on to something there. And and, yeah, and that's, I don't I mean, know I've, that he's, I don't know that a puddle can think but, that deeply. He is such a empty idiot. But I think there's something too around this positive psychology just woven all through this thing. But in the conversation we're having here around Who's having the cake? Who's not having the cake? Who's dancing? Why should they be dancing? The thing that there's a TED talk by a guy, an actual TED talk, uh, uh, <laughs> uh, the official, the <laughs> official version by a guy named Sean Aker, and who he does positive psychology work, and he talks about the fact that we think that we need to succeed and then we'll be happy, and that we've got it flipped around, the equation's backward, and what it is, what's actually true is that if if we're happy, we're more likely to succeed, and I think when you fix the shower. Right. And you, you have the cake and you dance and Higgins comes down and we have a laugh there. We're more likely to win the next game. And, and that Roy's attitude about you want to know if the snacks are good enough. And then Jamie's rejection of the cake. And it, like, it's them not them thinking if I feel horrible enough, if we all feel horrible enough, boss, as you point out, if we deprive ourselves enough, we'll become winners. And, and. A lot of it isn't true. It's the other way. Our brains actually work better when we're experiencing positive emotions and our health is better. All thing, all kinds of things are better in that way. And um, we're just not accustomed to seeing it that way. We're accustomed to that sense of like, we'll grind and grind. And one of these days we'll feel, you know, we'll, we'll get to some nirvana place and we'll, we'll all celebrate. Um, it's not really how it goes now that, you know, now that it's been studied. So that's also an evolved part of what Ted is doing. Yeah, I think that that, uh, what he's setting up there is super evolved. I think one of the interesting things about Jamie is that he obviously is dedicated to playing football, but that I can't remember which episode it is, but one of the things that Roy says is uh, because your right foot was kissed by God. So I think that there's an element here that Jamie thinks you have to do a lot of hard work in order to be good. And he's pissed off that everybody else on the team isn't doing the same hard work that he thinks he is when everyone else on the team thinks he's not actually doing that much work, that he lucked into it, but it's just natural Mm -hmm. talent and he hasn't had to fight for it in any way. So I think it sets up a really interesting dynamic that he thinks being physically punishing and hard is the way to do it. It's not. And also he's not conveying that to anybody else on his team. Yeah, that's and actually the one moment where he almost conveys it, maybe inadvertently, is in the office when Ted says there's one thing and he says, oh, my left crossover. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, yeah. so he knows it. He knows it. And and that yeah. says to me, it's been on his mind. He left. That's a left crossover. Oh, what I say? Term. Oh, I said crossover. What, what, said what cross- did he say? It's a cross, a cross when he crosses across the field. Oh, when he takes bad. it across yeah, the yeah. field with his, but, with his left but foot. Yeah, he's yeah. aware. He's aware of it, and uh, he was ready for it. He he says he works yeah, hard. I, yeah, work I work hard. hard. So that was an interesting. So yeah. So anyway, I think there's a lot to what you just put forth. 
And that's it. We finished with the Glad All Over by the Dave Clark Five, and we are done with episode two biscuits. Anxious, excited to see what happens in episode three. Coach, where do people find you if they want to follow you? At OG Bishop on Twitter, at BK2LA. That's Brooklyn2LA, the number two. So at BK2LA on Instagram, uh, Facebook. I'm just plain old Orlando Bishop and uh, look forward to hearing from y'all. What about you, boss? Uh, you can find me retweeting pictures of Pablo Schreiber and talking about how he destroyed my credit at, at <laughs> Dumbly underscore Chambers. Like Emily, but with a, a DU in the beginning. Got it. And I am at Lord Castleton, and you can follow us on Twitter. The TedCast is a joint venture between Pajiba and The Antagonist. Visit us at pajiba.com and antagonistblog.com.